Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. friends and welcome to the final episode of our October mini series. As you've heard me mention in the previous two episodes, October is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. And so if you missed the last two episodes, go back and check them out. Rachel Lohman was on here and Jonathan and Peter Pitts were also on here as well. Today my guest is Kayla Amy. Kayla is an author and a mom and a writer. And what we're talking about today is when her daughter was born weighing one pound, eight ounces. She was in the NICU for half a year. Kayla sits down and talks about what that was like to go through that journey in her marriage as a mom, trying to care for her daughter who's in the NICU and what it was like to have her come home. I've heard from a lot of friends who've had children stay in NICU and they felt very lonely and very misunderstood and a little bit outcast, not for anyone being mean, but for people just not understanding. And so my hope with having Kayla come on the show today is that we can all get a little bit more understanding of something that might not have affected us. I personally have never had a child in the NICU. And so Kayla's story was new to me, but it was encouraging to me. And I'm hopeful that when I do have a friend that has a child in the NICU, that I'll be a little bit more prepared to be the kind of friend that they need. You guys, these conversations that we've had for the month of October in our bonus episodes have been raw and real and hard, but I hope more than anything that with every conversation we've had that you've seen Jesus shine through in all of our words, even through the hard moments that these friends that have come on the show and have been willing to share the hard moments, I hope that you still see Jesus. Guys, if you have a friend who has experienced loss in some way or another or had a child who spent time in the NICU and they lost time with that child... Go ahead and share these episodes with them. I know sometimes I've been going through hard stuff and to hear someone else talk about something that I've experienced made me feel way less alone. So I hope that happens as well. And if this is you, if a friend sent you these shows and you're listening, I just want you to know that you're welcome here, that we serve a God who loves you more than anyone ever could. And I hope these stories have been stories of encouragement. You guys, here is my conversation with Kayla Amy. Hi, Kayla. Welcome to the happy hour. Yes. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you here. Would you introduce yourself to my listener? Yeah, sure. So my name is Kayla Amy. Um, I live in the north northeast-ish mountains of Georgia, um, and I am an author by night and a marketer by day. I've got um, I've got two great kids, and yeah. I love it. An author by night and a marketer by day. People yeah. are always like when they have, you know, like full-time nine to five regular jobs, like I want to write a book. It's like, well, it happens at night and in the That's mornings. Right. Yes. In the mornings. Yes. Okay. You've released two books, but you also write in lots of other places, but tell us about the books that you've released. Yeah. So the, um, the first book I released is called Anchored. Um, I wrote that really for parents who are going through some medical crisis with their kids. Uh, that's what we experienced with my daughter um, and a little bit of that journey. Um, the second is called In Bloom. And that's a real angsty look at my insecurities from like adolescence on and kind of overcoming those from a faith-based perspective. Um, and then outside of that, I sort of just dabble a little bit here and there in the parenting writing world. 
I love it so much. Well, I want to talk to you today about what you mentioned, the the journey that your family went on with your daughter. And I'd love for you just to tell us that story and then walk through what that looked like with your first pregnancy. Yeah. So um, my husband and I got married. Um, you know, we had been told I may or may not be able to have kids. Most likely not. I have endometriosis, PCOS, all the diagnoses you can stack up on top of each other for infertility. And um, so about four and a half years into our marriage, um, we surprisingly found out we were pregnant with my daughter. And it was just so, so exciting. We were so thrilled. Um, you know, at our 20 week ultrasound, we found out she was a girl and I called my parents. I was like playing my girl on the phone to them to let them know. <laughs> and then um, about four weeks later, I was 24 weeks pregnant. Um, I spontaneously went into labor mm. early and um, they couldn't stop my labor. So Scarlett was born at 25 weeks. Um, she weighed a pound and a half, uh, which is real, real tiny. Um, mm. And since so she spent the next six and a half months in the NICU, um, so it was a real, it was a really intense, um, sort of traumatic entry into parenthood for us. Very intense, very traumatic. Um, I'm wondering if you could share with us when you went into labor at 24 weeks and then, you know, you head to the hospital and they can't stop it. Um, what was that like for you and your husband to kind of wrap your brain around what we had, we were halfway, like, you know, you're like, we have yeah. 16 more weeks to go. What, what is, what did that look like for you guys in that part of your journey? Yeah, that was, that was really overwhelming in the sense that we were really unprepared that that could even be an option, you mm. know? Um, mm -hmm. Like when we, when I went to the doctor, I stopped by the doctor's office on the, on the way home from somewhere. So I was like, I just felt off. Like something just feels wrong, but I don't really know if maybe I'm overreacting. Cause I don't know. I've never been pregnant before. Maybe this is just part of it, you know? Um, and then they told me actually you're in active labor. And I thought, well, okay, they'll stop that though. Yeah. Like they'll just fix it. You know, it's like, it's, it was 2010. Mm -hmm. I was like, surely in 2010, yeah. there's a way to just make this, you know? Stop, stop and I'll go about my day. Yeah. So I think it was um, just intensely shocking to find out that all, all in one moment, right? Mm. That not only was I about to have the baby, but the, the odds um, of her survival were really, really low. And the odds of um, if she did survive, you know, they're like, she will likely be blind or she won't be able to walk. Or, you know, there would be all these challenges you're about to face if she does survive this. Um, so we just had to make a lot of really fast, hard decisions mm. um, in a minute. And we had never experienced that in our marriage before. We had never, you know, like had something come at us like that. Um, so I think it was it was incredibly, you know, this moment where you you don't even have time to grieve in the moment. Right. You just have to do and prepare. And it was so very painful because we didn't know what we were preparing for. You know, mm. are we are we about to lose her? That's that was the thing we thought might happen the most. Um, one of the things that I remember really vividly from that time, because they put you on a lot of medication if this happens to you. So it gets a little blurry. Like mm -hmm. at one point I was hallucinating characters from the land before time in my oh, wow, the dinosaurs. The, yeah, there was, um, <laughs> there was a crane outside my hospital window. They were doing work on it. And I genuinely thought it was a brontosaurus like checking on me. I thought it was, 
We can laugh like, now, but that was not funny in the moment. <laughs> and my husband was like, what are you talking about? Like, like my poor husband, because we were, you know, in the middle of this like trauma. And I was also like, and the dinosaur. And he's like, I don't understand what has happened to my wife. You yeah. know, like there was a lot going on for him. Um, but I think like he was, I remember telling him, I just, I we need to pick a name. We didn't have a name for the baby yet. And I was like, I don't want her to be born and die. And I've never named her. Like we, we have to pick a name. And um, we had been, we hadn't picked a name because we couldn't agree on a name. <laughs> he didn't love my first choice. Um, and he gave that to me in that moment, right? Like he was like, we're going to name her the name that I have, just my grandmother's name. And, um, and I, I knew that that was such a gift for him. And he was mm-hmm. trying to, you know, connect and call me, but also really scared me. Cause I was like, if he's giving in, like, it's because, right, because of how he's trying to hold my heart right now. And mm. that's actually even more scary. He would only, yeah. he's only doing that because he knows we might need it, right? He knows mm. we might need a soft place here, like anywhere that he can create some softness for me. Um, so, yeah, it's really, it's really indescribable. I think people describe it a lot like a roller coaster. Um, and it is very up and down, except for that. Like you sign up to go on a roller coaster. Like mm-hmm. You know, you're going to get off at some point. And from that day, like when it started, it was like, we don't know when this ends. Yeah. We don't yeah. know. We don't know how to get off this ride. I mean, speaking so. of roller coaster that you didn't sign up for, you said that your daughter Scarlett was in the Nikki for six, over six, six months. Yeah. And I think that it's something that is hard for people to understand if they haven't walked that road. Obviously that's how life works a lot of times, but the hard to understand the reality that after you had her, you went home and you went home every day for six months um, and left your daughter there. Can you talk about what that experience was like for you and for you and your husband as well? Yeah, that was, that was definitely for me emotionally the most difficult thing to overcome. So when Scarlett was born, she wasn't fully formed yet. Um, she was so early that she, her eyes were still fused shut. She didn't have ears. She didn't have, you know, eyebrows or um, eyelashes or anything like that. Like they hadn't, they still needed to form in the womb. And um, so to give her the best chance of survival, they put her in a tiny little plastic isolate and they keep that covered. They only open that once for 10 minutes every four hours. Um, so you can't see her and we weren't allowed to touch her. Her skin was so fragile that it would just tear on impact. So um, so I couldn't see her and I also couldn't hold her. Mm-hmm. So she was over a month old before I was ever allowed to hold her for the first time. So for me, I, I was already feeling so isolated and so distant from my baby and um, leaving her every night, knowing that I had never really touched her, knowing that I had never held her, um, I think kind of piled on that feeling of loss. Mm. Um, I was very, very afraid because she was in such critical condition that I, the next time they called me back to the hospital, you know, was because it would be the end. They would call us sometimes in the middle of the night and be like, you might need to come. We don't know if she's going to make it through the night. Um, and I kept thinking like the first time I hold her is going to be when she's dying. That's, Mm. that's when it's going to be. And, um, so it was incredibly just really traumatic to have to 
not only walk away from your brand new baby every single night and leave her and entrust her to the care of other people that you don't know, right? Um, but to do that, never having actually even held her, mm-hmm. um, it was really painful. And it, it was definitely, um, I, I think something that my husband and I, he, he tried to support me as best he could in that. And not that it wasn't incredibly difficult for him too, but I think there's just that, that piece that you don't understand if you don't, you know, if you're not mm-hmm. necessarily the mom, um, mm-hmm. there. So it was, you know, I think he tried his very best to support me through it, but I think it was hard for him that I, then he had to drive me home every night, just sobbing, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. he just watched, yeah. like he lost that connection with our baby. And then he had me to take care of on top of that. Yeah. It was a lot for one person. It's a lot. It's a lot. You talk about how, you know, he was trying to support you as best that he could. And, um, I think I would love to hear from you and I know our listeners would love this as well. What does support look like in that moment? You know, um, I'm past the childbearing years. And so this is, I can almost guarantee not going to be a path I'll walk down, but I definitely have, you know, lots and lots and lots of women who are in childbearing years and, um, not knowing if that will be part of their story. What does it look like to support someone as they go through, something that is, it feels to me like rare, but I know that it's not, if that makes sense, you know? Right. And so what does it look like to support that woman and husband for sure? Yeah. You know, we were so incredibly blessed by the way that our community just kind of loved us so well during that time. Um, one was people being really gentle with their words to us. You know, I would, I would feel um, hurt by well-meaning comments mm. a lot. You Can know, you tell us some of them? Things, yeah, people would say things like, oh, you look so great. You don't even look like you had a baby. And I'd be like, I wish I was still, I'm supposed to still be mm-hmm. pregnant. I, I should yeah. look like I had a baby. I wish there was a physical reminder here. Mm. You know, I didn't get far enough along. Yeah. Um, or, you know, people would, people would tell me often, like, um, God's got this. They would say that often. And I know that was so well-meaning. Um, but it really felt painful to me in that time because it felt like I don't understand why this is happening. And I am praying so hard for this. And, and people would also say often, like, God told me she's going to make it. And that seems like it'd be so comforting. It really does. But in that moment, I kept thinking, I am begging God to tell me if she's going to make it. I'm begging all day, every day. And I'm her mom. Like I just, you know, I need to hear it. I need to know. Um, so what I found the most comforting, and I know it's different for different people was when people would just say, I'm so sorry that this has happened to you. You know, like I'm here for you and I'm so sorry that this has happened. Um, that, that just gave me a little more room for grace while I was working out, like how my faith was responding in the moment so that I didn't have to feel like I needed to carry that pressure of, seeming okay when I wasn't. Um, and then the people who just jumped in and did stuff, you know, like we were, um, like the medical bills from that were just completely destructive. Um, Mm. so the people who fed my husband while I was at the hospital, you know, just come over and leave coolers of food on our porch so that like he was taken care of and, 
um, that meant just so very much to me in that moment because I could not function. I just Mm -hmm. couldn't. I tried to go to the grocery store once and just left a full cart in the middle and had to leave. So um, there was nothing happening like productive for me as a person Mm -hmm. of society during that Mm -hmm. initial stage when things were critical. Like I couldn't contribute anything meaningful to the world. You know, I have been in different scenarios than you, but also in scenarios where you're hurting and you're walking through something incredibly hard. And I think oftentimes we as humans, we want to help so badly and we want to like say Mm -hmm. the truth. Like, I love that you even said that like, God's got this. Okay. That's true. And (laughs) that's really hard to hear when you're in the middle Mm -hmm. of a hard scenario. And so I love that you said like just people really sitting with you and your sorrow. And I think that is uncomfortable for people sometimes. They'd rather like slap a little Christian sticker on it rather than have to be like, this actually really sucks. And I'm really sorry. And I don't get it. And I'm kind of mad at God too. Like that kind of feeling, I think is hard for people to to deal with. I think it was really uncomfortable for people in my tight knit circle too, because for the longest time, right? Like I was, I, from a young age, right, I was president of our FCA. I was the leader of our, you know, like local Sunday school group. I taught our youth group. Like I was a person who like had answers Mm -hmm. about faith, helped, you know, like walked people through those pieces. Um, And so I think it was really disconcerting for people to see me really fall apart in the middle of that. And I felt a lot of pressure to be like, I need to say that like, I also, you know, like God's got this, everything's fine. And I can't, I can't say that, you know, I can't do it right now. Um, I, I am really thankful in hindsight of the way that kind of expanded my faith um, to, to feel like what I came on the other side of that with was that I, I didn't lose it. Mm-hmm. Right. I still had it. I still believed in it. It was still there. Um, but I think before, right. Like our, I, our life is kind of now measured in that like before and after. Yeah. Right. So before that it was very limiting, right? Like this is how you're supposed to respond if you're a faithful person. And I felt shaken by my own self, that that wasn't my initial response, but I thought all my years of like practicing being a faithful person, like that when something hard happened, I would have it. Like mm-hmm. I'd walk through it with grace. You know, I would be a lovely um, person in a trial of crisis <laughs> and I was not that. I was mm. so broken and I was um, questioning everything. And on the outside of that, I learned that's okay too, right? Like what God got is is that that's fine. He's, mm. he's okay with handling my questions. He's okay with just being there. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, that sort of like weakness, strong piece is like I was really, really weak and that was okay, you know. Um, So I'm 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 thankful for that on the other side of it. But in the moment, (laughs) I definitely felt very um, it just felt like everything was broken. My body, like, you know, my relationship with the Lord. Um, my expectations for motherhood, like everything just sort of 
crashed in, in an mm. instant, really. Um, and I was like, the only thing that, that did hold was that my faith didn't go away, right? Like mm. that's that was still there. It just looked different. It was accessible in a different way. I needed it in a different way than I had before. You know, they talk, it talks about like, God will give you like, like grace for today, you know? And, um, you know, he talks about, I felt this a lot during COVID because there were so many unknowns with lots of stuff. And I remember one time I was like staying on the porch and I really got into like bird watching during COVID. I mean, who didn't, right? It's so like, did I. Yeah, yes. I'm like, I would find myself, I think I was just kind of like sitting on the front porch. Like, I don't know what I'm doing today, but I'm going to watch the birds. And I remember there was this moment when I like, br- it brought to my mind the scripture of like, of like how much God cares, like he takes care of the birds and the lilies and how much more does he take care of us? And there have been seasons in my life where I have felt that like, well, it is only God that is sustaining me here. And I could have not imagined that previous to then. You know what I mean? Like I couldn't imagine that how that would work. When you look back, you know, you have this clearer picture now. You and your husband are in the middle of it. And you said that your faith, it did. It did stand true and it, and it stood there. When you look back in that season, though, in the season, like not looking back, in the season, did you feel mm-hmm. like God was for you? In this season, I know I, I didn't feel like God was against me necessarily. Uh-huh. It wasn't like the opposite of that feeling. It was that I couldn't feel anything. Okay. I, I felt really numb. Um, and I felt like I can't hear from God. And and this is the time. Like, Where are you know, you? <laughs> if you're going to say anything, this would be a great moment to do it for me. Um, and like, where did, where did it go? You know? And, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think a big crux of that too is right. I grew up in the nineties evangelical South, right? Same. So there was this big correlation of if you're not hearing from God, you're doing something wrong. And, um, this made me have to really pull some of that down and evaluate, like, what do I believe because of who God is and what I believe about faith and what's true of faith? And what do I believe about things that have just been passed down, passed down, passed down, right. maybe I've never examined and aren't true. Yeah. And, and, and and I'm not seeing them hold true in this situation. Um, so it was a little bit, it was a little bit more of that. And I, I can tell you the moment uh, I can, I can pinpoint all the way down to the singular moment in time that I, I knew for sure um, was that Scarlet had coded. Um, and when a baby codes, you know, they, they, came, they kick all the parents out of the NICU and you're just in this crammed little waiting room. And I was the only person there. Jeff was at work. I didn't have any of my family with me. It was just me. And, um, and at first I didn't know it was her. Just I walked up as the code was happening and people were kicking people out. And um, and there's a couple of things that happen then. First, you're thinking like, please don't be my baby. Don't be my baby. And then you feel this horrible rush of guilt because you know that that means that that's somebody else's baby. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of sort of like PTSD survivor's guilt that comes from long-term exposure to something like that. Um, and and there, the people coming out, I can tell, um, you know, 
tap me. And I'm like, it's mine. It's, it's, mm. it's my baby. That's, that's coding. You see all the nurses, I could see through the curtains in the back. They're all rushing towards her. And, um, so just sitting in this waiting room completely alone, um, for almost an hour waiting to find out if my baby was still alive. And, um, and I just remember thinking, this is it. This is the moment. And everything in my life is about to change. You know, mm-hmm. like this is, I will never be the same person after this moment. Um, I don't know how I'm going to live after this moment. And I just remember knowing that when that happened, the only thing that I would still believe in would be my faith. That would be it. That'd be the only thing left. Um, and it was like so thin, right? It yeah, was like yeah. the thinnest gossamer strand that you could hold on to. But that that was that hadn't changed. That wasn't mm. going to change. Like everything was about to change and be real bad. And that wouldn't change. And I think I just remember thinking that's enough. That's that's enough for me to hold on, right? I just I think I just needed to know that it would it would be there. Mm. Um and then a little bit later they you know they call me back in and they're set, they've settled her down. They've you know, they've done all the things they have to do and she's breathing, she's hooked up all the machines, but she's breathing and her heart's beating. And um and I just thought, okay, like now I know. Mm. Now I know. Um and and that that was but that was yeah, it was just really clear. It was really clear in that moment um, what it was. And it didn't shift things after that. I still didn't feel like I was like hearing anything big from God. I still felt a lot of pain and a lot of grief, but I felt like I had one solid thing that I could mm. count on um, mm. that had stayed true through all of it. And that made all the difference for me. You know, a lot of times we talk about grief as in... Um, I mean, I think the most way that people would think about grief is like you're grieving someone who's gone. You're grieving a lost one. And um, the older I've gotten, I've grieved a lot of things that aren't humans. <laughs> I've grieved a lot, of, a loss of a lot of things that actually didn't end in a death. And so I think grief is this massive thing that um, it's super scary. It's super hard to walk through. Um, it's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to stay there. It's all the things. In those I have, I have two questions I want to ask you right now about grief. Yeah. One is in the six months that Scarlett was in the, the NICU. And then one is six months to 12 years. Is she 12? Yeah. The last 11 and a half years. And so I think I would like to hear from you about grief and what that looked like for you and your husband to walk through grieving, whatever it was that you were grieving in the NICU stay. And then even in these past 11 and a half years, what does that look like for you guys? Yeah. So during the stay, it was just this ebb and flow of grief daily, almost hourly. Things would change so quickly. She'd be okay in the morning and she'd be critical again by the afternoon. So it just came in waves um, every day. And there was such a intense focus on the minute by minute Mm. that I was missing what was happening to us as a whole. Um, You know, my husband we, we disagreed on certain things. Um, you know, we were slowly going <laughs> absolutely broke. Mm-hmm. And I said slowly, but really quickly, I guess the <laughs> NICU bills were over a million dollars. Like it was crippling 
medical debt. And he's just like working so hard to try to, you know, keep us going. And, um, and we were, my, I think, you know, postpartum PTSD was so intense. Um, and we weren't together. We were spending a ton of time separately. At yeah. one point, Scarlett was transferred to another hospital. So we lived apart for a good two months of that time. Um, and didn't, we weren't seeing each other. We weren't connecting. We were disagreeing about some of the treatment or the care. And, um, and we really, we really, in the middle of this NICU stay, I think, grew more apart than together mm. um, because we were so intensely focused on our own grief versus how we could be grieving together and how yeah. it was impacting both of us together. So um, I think that's one of my larger regrets. I, I wish very much that we had, we had looked for help mm. during the time that we had gotten support, that we had looked into what resources might be available, that we'd started counseling while she was in the NICU. Mm. Um, so that, so that when we try to reintegrate right after that, um, you know, it's, it's not easy. It's a really difficult re-entry into mm. the world when you bring the baby home. Um, so I, I think the grief post that was realizing how much we had lost during that time. Like mm. we, we got what we wanted, right? Like mm -hmm. our baby, Your daughter's was, home. she came home. That mm -hmm. was amazing. Nothing will ever compare to that feeling. Um, but it, the, the incident itself just left a lot of collateral damage mm -hmm. that then we needed to spend the next several years repairing. Um, so, and we didn't know, we didn't know what we yeah. didn't know then. You but, don't know, you know now. You know. Yeah. You know, now when, and I'm in a, I'm in a really privileged place now where people, people gift the book to parents who are in the NICU, mm -hmm. right? Or we, my readers have been so lovely to donate it to NICU libraries around the country. Most NICUs yeah. have like a parent library where mm -hmm. they can just borrow books. Um, and so the most that I hear from readers is like some, someone gave me this book or my nurse gave me this book and it, it helped me get help earlier mm. in the process. And I'm so thankful yeah. that that part of our story can do that for other people mm -hmm. um, because I've, I wish it's what we had had the most. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to answer a second, Scarlett turns 13 in November, um, which is insane to me. And, um, and there would be earlier on, especially there would be things that would um, just really trigger a, a memory for me. And I would feel either the grief or I would mm -hmm. feel the remnants of the panic mm -hmm. Um and some of that's never really subsided. Like I had to take my sister to the ER recently and um, they have dropped all the machines and just the sound of, mm. of the pulse ox and everything going off. Like took really, you back. My, my body just, again, yeah. I was like, I can see that things are fine, but I just, my heart rate, just the, just the absolute immediate reaction, you know, mm -hmm. um, still exists. Um, my counselor always says that our, our brain knows that we're safe but our body remembers what it means to be unsafe in that situation. And it reacts, it, even though you can does. say everything's fine. This is not my daughter. She's good. All the things your body is going, no, I remember here and I'm going to fight for this. Yes. 
it is crazy how that happens. Mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting that at all, you know, and I could see, and now you spend that long in the NICU, right? Like I know what all those numbers mean. I can read those. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I can read those. No problem. I'm like, Oh, my sister's okay. Like this should yeah. feel good. I brought her here, but like, she's going to be fine. I think. Um, so, you know, and then I think the grief is over the years is, is really interesting. Um, because so in Scarlett's situation, you know, we had, uh, multiple therapists at the house all the time. She, she didn't learn to eat till she was two. She didn't learn to walk. They were worried she might have, um, you know, paralysis, different things like that. And, um, so we were just, we were in isolation. We still couldn't have her around people, even when she was home. Uh, we were, I've got a nurse coming to my house four to five days a week. We're working on all these things. So you're still just like really in that. And you're mm-hmm. grieving a little bit of just like, what you thought your experience would be. And also, you know, we were still really unsure back then what kind of life she might have. Um, you know, remember her being almost two and they were like, she's not going to be able to like walk or run normally. And like now she's 13 and she's on the soccer team. Like it's, so it's really this, um, this interesting place where the grief kind of turns into this path to praise you know, Mm. where we've been really, really blessed to see the things that we specifically hoped for, for her come to fruition out of like what, what we once grieved. Mm. Um, so that has been a really, a really beautiful process, but it, it was several years of putting our lives back together or creating new dreams or building new plans, um, based on, you know, where we had been. And then, you know, halfway through that, you know, about five years after we had Scarlett, when I had Scarlett, my doctor was like, no more babies. And I was like, yeah, I'm never going to do that again. (laughs) Like, I'm so happy I got this one. And like, she's made it and she's here. And like, um, I don't want to go through a a NICU experience like that again. And I don't want to put my baby, I don't want to put another baby through suffering. You know, I was really, Mm -hmm. I I didn't want to see it. Another one of my child children suffer suffer the way that Scarlett had. Um, and then we found out sort of that we were like shockingly pregnant with my son. <laughs> and, um, and then that was a whole new kind of experience of how grief impacts what should be joyous. Like I right. was, we were so thrilled, you know, we didn't expect that. Um, it was a real big surprise to us. And also we were terrified. Yeah. You know, <laughs> So, Understandably, yeah, <laughs> we were so scared, yeah. um, and you know, this time because of what had happened last time, they were able to like I put me on a special care plan. I was on bed rest for like the whole pregnancy. I had you know nurses come out to give me special shots to try to keep me pregnant every week. I was mm. In and out of the hospital, and this time they were able to like keep me pregnant every time I tried. I tried a lot to go into labor early, <laughs> but this, Your body this time tried. they were like, "Yeah, we got it." Yeah. But, um, but that was an interesting experience of, of, of like the, the grief was so deep that it is really kind of permeated yeah. all the pieces of our lives. And we have had to work really hard as a family, as a couple to identify those things and, mm-hmm. and say, this is, this is a reaction because of our past grief. Mm. This is where grief is intruding on what should be joyous for us. And we've got to make a different choice. Like we're going to yeah. choose to be hopeful here. We're going to choose to see mm. joy here. Um, I do think the contrast of the depths of that grief has, has created 
um, something I don't know that we would have had without it, right? Like, I think that we live very deeply presently within our family. I think Mm. we take such deep joy in everything that happens. You know, there's lots of little things where I find that I'm like, I think I might have missed this Mm. if the grief hadn't taught me that I needed to look for it and to to just take it in while it's here, right? Mm -hmm. Because we did learn that it just, life is so fleeting, you know? Um, It can just, it can just go away so quickly. So um, I think now we live out a lot of our parenthood knowing that, knowing that like every moment that we have right now is something that we didn't expect to have. Um, And I don't know that, I would have done that before. I think I might have missed a lot more if I didn't have the grief to measure it by. It's funny how grief can be a measure like that. You hate it so much and then you look up and be like, it has actually benefited me in ways I never could have imagined. And I think that's only the grace of God that could do that. Um, You told me that you would sing a Taylor Swift song. Uh, every time you would leave the hospital to Scarlett, tell me that story and then how that came full circle for you recently. Oh my gosh. Okay. Let's see if I can get through it without crying. I have yet, I have yet. Well, to. I, I um. cried when I read about it. So there's that. Scarlett's just like, oh my goodness. She is just like the light of my life, but also she's just this like little effervescent personality. So, um, that's so fun. But when like I, so I'm a big Taylor Swift fan, right? Like Mm-hmm. From the beginning, okay, I used to, I think I started my blog when I was in college. And like one of my like early entries is like, who's this little country singer? Like, I love this song, right? I'm like, I have followed her forever. So when I was pregnant with Scarlett, Speak Now came out and I was a first time mom. So I would like put the headphones on my belly, <laughs> you know, like all the things they say to do. And I would play the little songs like, I'm so enchanted to meet you. And um, I was scrapbooking back then. So we have like our little scrapbook with her sonogram pictures. It's like so enchanted to meet you. It's like real uh, cutesy. And then um, when she was when she was born, I found that I had a really hard time praying. I just was in that place where I just I just couldn't do it. Um, and so I would I would sing to her, or I would we would. This is so old now, but uh, we may, would burn CDs. Mm-hmm. of like meaningful songs and uh, hymns um, and, and music that we would leave playing in the NICU when we couldn't be there with her. Um, and so when I would leave every night, I had taped a Bible verse to her, little isolate, and and I couldn't bring myself to really pray. Um, I just couldn't get the words out. Mm-hmm. So I would sing to her and um, I would sing a part of, that song Enchanted by Taylor Swift that that talks about, you know, my thoughts will echo your name until I see you again. Um, And so then like 13 years later, um, I miraculously managed to score tickets to the Taylor Swift concert, right? Because you know how hard those were to get this year. Um, I was like, I've got like 10 10 cues going trying to get tickets uh-huh. and I surprised Scarlett with them for Christmas because she really wanted to go and um so I'm like such a fan I was like I don't want to know right I don't want to be spoiled I went on on Instagram and I like blocked all the keywords so that I wouldn't see any concert videos or anything and 
be spoiled about the set list. So during the show, I'm there with my sister and my niece and my daughter. And um, it's like 13 years later. And Taylor Swift comes out. And the only song she sings from that album is that song. And when I tell you, Scarlett, she's just she's dressed in all sparkles, you know, and she's just jumping up and down, like dancing and singing. And I'm just like, they told me when she was born, like she might never walk. And then they did surgery on her heart. And they said, we hit her vocal cord. It might be paralyzed. She might never talk. Um, she does talk. She just has a very high soprano because of that damage. But um, so she's just in her tiny soprano voice, just singing this song at the top of her lungs, dancing next to me. And I just absolutely lost it. I was just like, I, I remember singing this indelible grace song to her a lot when she was um, in the NICU. Cause again, I had a hard time praying and it was saying, um, you know, hope will turn to glad fruition faith to sight and prayer to praise. Um, and I was standing in the middle of 70,000 people at the Eras tour, watching her sing the song that I sang to her every night before I left her in the hospital. And I was like, this is it. Like, this is hope to glad fruition. Mm-hmm. Like I never saw this coming. Um, what a joy, like what a gift that I'm having in this moment right now. And I don't think I'm ever going to get over it. Like, um, it was more than I ever could have dreamed. I just wanted her to live, you know, and like here she is thriving um, next to me at like my favorite singer's concert, not embarrassed to be with her mom, you know, in middle school. Um, So I was like, this is probably, I'm like, I'm had a wedding and given birth to two children. And I think this is like my top four (laughs) (laughs) experiences of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so beautiful. Well, Kayla, I'm so grateful for, um, for you sharing your story with us today, I know that it is, although it is a miracle and it is beautiful, I know that it's often hard to go back and share um, things that are difficult. But as you've seen from your book, I know that it's going to be beneficial to a lot of people who are listening. So thank you so much. I'd love to hear, what are you reading these days? Yeah, so <laughs> so I'm reading my way through all of the Agatha Christie novels. Got it. Um, yeah, I got really into old mysteries. Um, and I don't know how, I mean, I like mysteries, but I don't know how I'd never really, like, she's like, I think the bestseller of all time, right? Agatha Christie. Maybe. And I just never read it. Yeah. But, um, I discovered I really liked them because there's no modern technology in them. So you can't be like, that would have been solved if you just called someone on yourself. Right. You know how sometimes <laughs> yeah. it takes you out of the story when you're like, okay, but you could just like Google that. Exactly. Um, so I've really been enjoying like disappearing into like cozy fall mysteries. I love it so much. Those are good. Well, I just started a new book. I was going to look it up to tell you. I just started a book by Tessa Afshar. It is our, actually our September book club. So I just started, it's her new book. It's called The Peasant King. And she was a guest on the show Whoa. this summer um, and it's historical fiction, but it's all set around biblical things. I believe um, oh, nice. all of her, this will be the first book I've read of her. So I'm excited. I'm actually starting that uh, tomorrow. So I'm super excited. Yeah. Fiction for the win. Great. Fiction for the win. I, love it. I know. Well, Kayla, I really appreciate you so much. And thank you for taking the time to come on the happy hour and share your story with my listeners. Yeah. Thank you again for having me. The Happy Hour is produced and hosted by myself, Jamie Ivey, with assistance from Nikki Ogden and Ashley Caldwell, and the show is edited by Jason Talley.